Welcome back to the next part of this Truth and Rhythm episode. Be sure to subscribe to this channel. If you've already done so, please share it with friends. Also become a member by joining Truth and Rhythm on Patreon or consider donating at funkinstuff.net. Thank you so much for your interest and support. Enjoy. Well, can you share with us what are a couple of memories from the studio that really stand out from the 80s? Uh, for you, maybe two or three, uh, you know, real highlights or, or thrills or funny things or whatever. Okay, man. <laughs> it's a lot of stuff, man. But um, let me see. Let me see. Let me see. Let's go to um, 1987, The Bad Album with Michael, on Michael Jackson. But of course, here I am. It's 87. You and I are 26 years old at that time. Right, we're 26, so and I'm still, um, you know, to receive a call. And this was our Ollie Brown hookup, you know. Keep in mind now, this is after that first tease album, but Ollie was another one who kept stayed with me and kept me in his fold. And Ollie pulled me in on a lot of great opportunities, you know, that you know, that he had that connection to. You know, he got me tied in. He tied. He he introduced me to Quincy Jones, and got me tied in in in, in, in the Quincy Jones camp, and the Michael Jackson camp, and all that. So, um, the one thing that really really comes to my mind with that was okay. Keep in mind, I'm the new guy, right? Everybody else in the studio is superstars, superstar musicians. You know, you got Greg Fillingaines, you got um. Michael Boddicker, you got, um, who else? John Robinson, you got superstar guys and me, you know? So I'm feeling very starstruck, but I can't make it, I can't come off. Gotta be cool. I gotta be cool and I gotta, I gotta act like I'm not starstruck, you know? And then you gotta keep in mind, that's Quincy Jones sitting right there six feet away from me, you know? So it's like, man, I, man I'm going to go commit suicide, man. I, this is too unreal. It's too much for one dude. I can't handle it. And then, but the weird part about it was Michael. You know, all we were in studio maybe four or five days in this one week. Michael never once came into the control room, right? Like he wouldn't come. He was upstairs at a loft at Westlake Audio. And he would never actually come into the control room where everybody else was working. You know, what he would do instead do was um, he hung out in this upstairs law. If he had any question about anything, he'd come to the, the like at the, the opening of the law and he'd yell down, Chrissy, right? 
And Quincy will be like, okay, let's take a break, guys. I'll be right back. And he'll run upstairs, talk to Michael, and then he'll come back. Okay, guys, let's get back. And so this went on for like the first couple days. And I was like, this is kind of weird, you know? It's kind of weird. Like, bro, I'm the only new guy. I'm the only guy you probably don't already know. Why are you not, like, you know, involving yourself in the, in what's going on? So days three and four go by, same thing, you know? Except on one of the days, Michael, I, we were listening to playback, right? We'd done a take and we were listening and, you know, we had to, it was up loud. And Michael, what he had done was he came down and what he did was he was in the back, but he was like hiding behind the wall, you know, just, you know, just kind of hiding. And then I kind of turned around and I saw him come and, and he was peeking around the wall and as I turned around and I saw him. And when he, when our eyes met, he just stuck back behind the wall, like, like to try to hide from me again. I'm like, wait a minute. Bro, what is wrong with this? Anybody, what's wrong with this dude? Why does he keep doing that? I saw you, my boy, he's right there. What is wrong with this dude? Man, why are you doing this? Man, that's enough. I can't take it no more. Bro, get your ass in here. <laughs> why are you ducking and peeking and hiding and doing all this? Man, what is wrong with this dude? You know, and, and why ain't nobody else saying anything? <laughs> so, you know, um, that happened. So then we got to the very final day, I think day five. Um, this was a whole an entirely different atmosphere. Um, one thing that were HBO had came down and they were doing a, a documentary. They were filming for a documentary. So there were camera people and crews and they were literally shooting we had two rooms going. I was working on one side, Paul Jackson working on another side, you know, which was a real cool day too. Cause you got, you know, me and Paul been friends since elementary school. So you got me and Paul Jackson side by side working for Michael Jackson, you know? So that was a really cool day for me and Paul. So now um, the, 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 the Atmosphere is totally different because of the, I, I would say, the, the HBO people and the crews and stuff. So they're filming and got all that going on. And then also there were kids that were in the studio that day. It was like Quincy Jones, his grandkids were there. Greg Filling Gaines had three, like two or three of his kids were there. So there might have been about five or six like kids, like 12 and under, you know, that were in the studio and, and, a, and a few animals. You know, I think Michael's snake was there and Bubbles the chimpanzee was there and Bruce Swedean, the engineer, had a big mastiff, like dog. You know, so it was just like a zoo and a park and like a whole different atmosphere this particular day. And all that hiding that Michael was doing, he totally stopped. He was like totally involved. You know, he was all over the studio. He was, you know, I mean, literally talking to me and we were, doing, we were working on speed demons. That particular day, this is the day I did the I did drum programming on on Speed Demons. So and it was banging. I had that shit banging so hard, you know. And so we were listening, and this would be the first day that he literally would come in and literally communicate, and we talked, and you know he you know expressed his appreciation, and you know him and the kids are running around and they're wrestling and they're playing and 
he's a he's as big a kid as the rest of the kids, you know. So um, that's one of the real um, definite memories of of, of um, the eighty studio experience. You know, was that, um, and then the rest of them, man. There's there was so many through the eighties, so many different projects, man. You know, and we were getting started. You know, that was my whole our whole stint with. Solar Records. We did a lot of recording with Solar Records in 1982-83-84 and then I connected with Bernadette Cooper and she and I ended up in a partnership and you know we had a couple of hit records that we did together. Madam X, right? Madam X, yeah, Madam X and um, um, Bernadette's solo record and you know so um, you know it was a lot of um, a lot of situations and it's hard to pinpoint you know that, those things, you know, I would almost have to move into the nineties. You know? Let me just throw a couple of uh, people at you and you tell me if anything comes to mind about their talent or um, the process that you went through with them. How's that? Sure. Absolutely. Um, well, Vanessa Williams actually brought you back with Kipper, right? Yeah, that was all through Kipper and Rex Salas. So Kipper. you, pe- you patched things up from the tease thing yeah, right yeah, uh, you know what yeah we, we we ended up because again after post tease for me after 1986 it was almost like things really started to take off things really started to take off for me individually but keep in mind kipper jones is my brother and life without him is weird life is not you know without the organ brothers without chucky without rex it's weird. Now I'm moving this way and those dudes are moving that way. And it was kind of, you know, 87, 88, 89 were, you know, tough years. You know, it was like, wow, I, I, I don't, I'm happy, but I'm not happy. I miss my guys. And, you know, you got to keep in mind, me and Kipper have been connected since 1976. You know, so now life without him is weird. So 80, 88 comes around. And then, you know, and that same thing that I was trying to do early, like go out and find a gig and find some things to kind of, you know, now these guys are now seeing like, we got to, oh, this, this club, this tease club, you know, you know, we're going to have to kind of disband and go out and make some money. And so Kipper went out and got his record deal with Virgin. Kipper got, you know, at the, after they did the tease records, he got his solo deal and he ended up basically reaching out to me and he pulled the organ brothers and I mean, and Chucky, the band. So we basically reunited to do Kipper's album, which really in retrospect was all we all had to do. We were, it, it didn't mean we didn't love or care for each other, but you know, we were, you know, we, we could have, I, I look at it now and say, we could have made some great connections for the band there's no, no no telling what we could have done if you know you know we weren't so like it's like the crabs in a barrel one guy starts to make make it out and then the rest of the crabs pull him back down so that's i thought there were some nice moments on his record there were some definitely nice moments you know definitely nice moments and um yeah that was kind of like uh, you know that brought us back together and me back into the fold and by that time you know i was okay with what had happened and the way I felt they did me because I thought they they did me dirty in um in 1986 
but I got over it. And so we, we connected and we did Kipper's album. And then sure enough, same thing would happen in 89 when Chucky Booker signed his deal with um, Atlantic. And he did the same thing. You know, he brought the guys back together. You know, so again, it's me, Derek, Tommy, Rex, um, Chucky, you know. So um, by that time, we had, you know, it, it was like everything was, we were back good. But it didn't stay that way. <laughs> Crossover into the 90s and it got back weird again. I was like, wow. I thought we were cool and man, we got, it, it, it took a super weird turn. Um, right, right after we crossed over into the nineties, you know, mm. that that thing. Man, you know, did, did the way the record label structure was changing uh, affect it at all? Was the business affecting those relationships at all? You know what? I wouldn't say the business and and you know the way business you know began to change and you know I didn't think I wouldn't I don't think that's what it was that that really caused what happened to us to happen to us. No, I thought it was, I think it was individuals and and just time and timing and situations. Like um, as I was saying about um, you know, me being brought back into connection with those guys in the late eighties. Um, um, by the time Chucky's record and Chucky's thing really jumped out big, you know, Chucky had a very, you know, had a number one single, you know, was turned away. And so, and you know, it was such a high musicality on his album. It was a dope, dope album. And it was really, it was Tease. Chucky, Chucky Booker's first album is just like what Tease would have been, you know, at that time. So of course, it was a natural thing. He called me to musical direct him. Like I was his musical director um, for, because he started get, getting television and tour dates and, 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 when it was all said and done, he was actually the opening act for Janet Jackson's Rhythm Nation tour. You know, and this is where it got weird again because Chucky and Rex called me from Janet's, from Janet, you know, a party to say, look, Corny, um, me, we're here at Janet Jackson's, you know, with Janet, and Janet just asked me to open her tour. So we're going to go on tour with Janet Jackson. We're going to be the opening act. We. And that includes Corny Mims. So, hey, man, I'm super excited, man. Let's get ready. Let's start getting pre-prepped and start breaking Janet's stuff down and let's get the Chucky show together and let's get ready to go on the, on, on the road. And somehow, some way, I got just X-nayed and X'd out of the equation. You know, and the rest of them, Chucky, Derek, Tommy, Rex, all of those guys ended up being her band and then they, they slid another bass player in. And just like really just with no explanation as to why I was the guy that they chose to X out. I, I didn't do anything to anybody. I thought we were good. So that really, really, you know, I was, I was um, pretty emotionally affected by that. You know, that was like weird. I was like, wow, man, you know, how is, you know, what the fuck? That's, that's ironic after almost 10 years earlier, you had turned away those other tours right, on, right. on your side, you know? Right, right, right. And then I get this one and I'm, I'm down, I'm going, I'm, there's no way I'm going to quit. And then I get Ixnade. I mean, just weird, you know, nobody had any real um, explanation. These guys, and you know, these guys, like I say, Rex and I have been buddies just like 
like Rex and I were friends even before me and Kipper. You know, I knew Rex Salas even before me and Kipper met in the 10th grade. So mm-hmm. it's like, you know, guys, I mean, I can't get no kind of explanation as to why this went down the way it went down. And I was, I could, I, I actually have a lawsuit, you know, if I were to pursue it, I was wow. told, but anyway, so well, that, you, you, well, that was unfortunate for sure. Uh, you kept rolling uh, with, you know, Grover Washington Jr. And yeah. Paul Jackson stuff and yeah. Uh, yeah. Snoop Dogg a little bit later. Mm-hmm. What was it like uh, working with Grover? You know what, Grover, um, that was, that was just a session. That was just a session, you know, um, it was a great experience to, to, to work with him. You know, it was just like a one-off kind of a one-off recording session that I did for him, but it did lead to something very, very cool for me. Um, there was another young sax player that was coming up, coming out in the early eighties. And I would really honestly say that smooth jazz, the, the, the genre known as smooth jazz, really began with this dude. It was even before Kenny G. And this brother's name was George Howard. Mm-hmm. George Howard. Now, um, Grover Washington is, of course, legendary out of Philadelphia. And that's where um, George Howard also um, hailed from. Also a soprano player, too. Soprano sax. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So um, George Howard, I ended up connecting with George through my association with, with Grover. And... Um, that went on, and that, that was another one. Actually, that was the gig that I did that got me kicked out of tees. <laughs> but that was just like George Howard started to take off in the mid-80s. You know, like I say, this is the very um, embryonic days of um, smooth jazz. So that, 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 that soprano sax, you know, kind of with a little, it's almost like instrumental R&B. So, it, it, so George, George Howard was really starting to stack up a lot of work and gain a lot of notoriety. And that was a gig that I'd gotten called for while I was still a member of Tees. And I had to go to do a week-long engagement with him in Washington, D.C. One week, not a tour, just one week. But now the problem was we also had a gig in town in Los Angeles with Tees where we'd all be making about $9 a, a man. After, you know, I think we'd be making somewhere about nine, 10 bucks a guy. Oh, but $9 went so far then. Oh, yeah. This is 1985. (laughs) Yeah, it did go a lot further than it would go to. It's like 20 back then. But now, get a load of this. I was going to go to D.C. for for a week with George Howard and make like 1300. So I had to say, nine dollars, 1300. I went with the 1300. For the week and then i came home and, and oh man it was a, it was we had we had to have an immediate meeting so i went straight from the airport to a meeting with kipper and the guys and of course that's when they told me you you, you know after that made those other sacrifices after i missed out on the marvin Gaye farm after i missed out on the patrice russian i even missed out on jeff lorber that was another gig that i passed on for tease was the jeff lorber tour you know mm-hmm. so anyway and then, you know, I go out for one week with George Howard, come back, and I'm fired. You're gone. So, but, you know, hey, man, it all works out in, in, in the big picture. You mentioned, well, what were some of the tours in the 90s that were oh, notable? Yeah. yeah, you know what? Johnny Gill, you know, and it was amazing. Like, I worked with Johnny Gill 
in 83, he was about 12 years old. Hmm. Literally, because I went through a period like in those early 80s. These were my first recordings, right? My first, you know, first professional recordings. It was a producer by the name of Freddie Parent. And Freddie was a huge dude. He came off of um, Saturday Night Fever Success. And he had done a lot of records for Motown and, you know, that he'd written and produced. So Freddie was a huge producer who gave me my first um you know session breaks so i worked with johnny gill in 83 with freddie parent and then sure enough by 91 now johnny's a big star you know and he's a young adult he's a young man and he's a big star so i ended up touring with johnny in 81 you know so that was the first tour of, of the 90s um after johnny man um, a, lot of, a lot of screaming women Screaming women everywhere, man. Yeah, because yeah. he had, he had him going. So you know, I mean, it was Johnny Gill, and then '92, I, 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 I took over in Vogue as their musical director, bass player. So, and they, they were hot at the time. You know, the Funky Divas tour, I did. And in, in, in um, '94, I ended up getting uh, hooking up with Brandy. You know, so I became her musical director slash bass player. So Brandy, I was, I was floating between Brandy and a group called All for One. Was Brandy another Ollie hookup? No, no, no. Um, Brandy came by way of... Okay, firstly, keep in mind, Kipper wrote her, her first hit record. Right. Yeah, Kipper was the writer of, of, of her stuff. So um, he, he co-wrote that with a, a, young, a young brother named Keith Crouch. So Kipper, Kipper and Keith were like a partnership at that time. So... Um, and then Keith was also another kid that I had taken under my wing. So they had the association through the record. So wasn't he, he was related to Andre Crouch. Yep. Nephew. Nephew. Yeah. There's the Crouch brother. There's Keith and Kenneth Crouch. Both of them monstrosities of music minds. Both of them. And they are both the nephews of Andre Crouch. Yeah. So Brandy came by way of just the association to Kipper and the Crouch Brothers, you know, and she was, she had started off her initial very, very beginning tour experience and then she wasn't happy with the band. So I ended up um, getting a call to come in and this is in 94. So, um, yeah, so I mean, I, I, I took off and did Brandy and I did All For One, you know, that was all during the years of 94 and 95. I stayed with Brandy off and on until around 2001 you know but even in that i ended up um doing a um a really awesome tour no let's see let me stay try to stay chronological 97 i did a, a european run with snoop Dogg. that was great i put a band together for snoop also i did um jermaine uh, not jermaine but tito jackson tito jackson back in the 90s his sons were massive in europe they had a they had a group called Three T, and it was um, um, Tito Jackson's sons, and I mean I never understood, I didn't know, you know this is where I where I learned that, you know when they say it's a small world, no it ain't, the world is massive, and you can really blow up in other places besides the United States. Mm -hmm. You know, you don't have to depend on the United States to make your money and to, to amass, you know, fame. 
Because when we got over to Europe with 3T, I'd never seen anything like this in my entire life. I'm talking about, you would have thought we were the Beatles. I mean, I've never, you know, we, we were getting chased through airports all the time. You know, we get to our airport and look at this, man. This is so crazy. I'm looking at my phone. I don't know if you can see that, but that says K Crouch. Wow, <laughs> yours are ringing. Oh, yeah, yeah. It's Kenneth Crouch. It's a message Kenneth Crouch <laughs> on my phone right now. Wow. Yeah, but um, so, yeah, we were running through airports and getting mobbed and, you know, all that stuff with, with, with um, you know, because at that time, you know, and even to this day, if you have any association to Michael Jackson in Europe, you're huge. You can be Michael Jackson's Labrador Retriever, and you're huge. So those those boys were big. So that was a great tour back in the mid '90s. And Snoop Dogg, I went right back over with Snoop after after Three T and did Europe with Snoop. And so um, the the tour life was very rich through the '90s. You know, it it, it was tour, it was television, and it was. Um, a lot of studio and production. You know, the 90s was a, a, a very, very rich era uh, or, or decade. What was it like for you making the uh, move to working with some hip-hop artists? You know, um, how did your playing, you probably just needed to maybe even simplify your playing more for that, I'm guessing, but just holding down that groove. Yeah, but it, it was not even really that much of a transition because simplified is what I am. You know, I'm, I'm always going to be simplified. So I didn't really have to change my mindset or my approach much for hip hop. You know, again, it, it just kind of was um, a, a, um, a, a no brainer. You know, I started working with them. Um, really, I, I got a, a real heavy dose of hip hop work by way of DJ Quick. DJ Quick, who is a, a super dope hip hop artist, you know, one of my favorites, even to this day, you know, but the thing is, DJ Quick is also a, a prolific music mind. He's a real music dude. He's not just a rap mind. He's very much, you know, technical, very musical, knows what he wants, knows what he's doing. So, um, he and I were a serious match when, when we connected, you know, to actually, um, to actually, you know, get in there and create and make music. So um, my approach was, and, and, you know, he's a very old school minded guy as well. So, you know, and a lot of times, you know, I was just recreating samples and loops, you know, he just had me play the line again. So since, you know, a lot of those things were from the era I came up in, Anyway, it was nothing to recreate, you know, for me. And seems so it like, seems like you could even make some suggestions to those guys because you have that history and that wealth oh, of riffs. Yeah. yeah, especially as time went along. And, you know, I mean, after DJ Quick and then, you know, from the DJ Quick, we ended up um, connecting with the Death Row Camp by, by 96, 95, actually. You know, by 95, you know, DJ Quick ended up connecting with Death Row and Suge Knight. He brought myself and Rick Rouse and Warren Campbell, a few of us, you know, that were part of 
the 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 DJ Quick Camp. He brought us into the Death Row with him. So all of a sudden, Death Row gets their first taste of recordings with live musicians, with actual real players instead of sampling and 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 you know and having to clear samples. All of a sudden, all we got to do is get these guys to replay it, and then we ain't got to clear a sample no more. You know, if we like it. So um, sure enough, that entire label just lost their minds because we, we got these on-staff guys that can play anything. And it sounds just like the, the original, if not better. And so many of the things, and, and it takes the, 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 the need to clear sample and pay sample clearances out of the equation. Mm-hmm. So we became a real commodity for death row, you know? And so the Tupac All Eyes on Me album, you know, was really, you know, by this time DJ Quick had left, but they made the pot so sweet for us as those, as that, as that musician core until we stayed. I stayed. And, and I, I, I kind of became kind of like the, the MD for death row you know, for the sessions, you know, whatever they needed as far as live music, musicians, I'd get the call and then I'd hook up, you know, the keyboard players or the drummers or the, the horn players, whatever they were going for. You know, I was kind of like the, the guy. And even on live gigs, you know, I ended up doing Snoop. I ended up putting Tupac's band together. You know, we went and did Saturday Night, Saturday Night Live. And... um and those were like really funky, funky situations, man. Both of them. I was really happy with the outcome of the Tupac Saturday Night Live performance. Um, I mean, I liked the band. I didn't like Tupac. You know, I didn't care for his performance, but um, I loved the band. Yeah. And then same thing with um, Snoop. But I loved, Snoop was dope too. You know, very, very different scenario between Tupac and, and, and um, Snoop Dogg as far as just individuals. Well, I always liked uh, Snoop's flow better too, just his whole persona and attitude and and most of his music too. Absolutely. But, but, you know, just like you, I mean, coming out of the same era and being in the funk, it was just a natural progression to gravitate towards hip hop then, you know, that was embracing and and using funk for its foundation. Yeah, 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 yeah. You know, I mean, you know, starting early on, you know, I'm talking about the, the, the very beginning stages of hip hop in the eighties, you know, a lot of the records were, they, they, they were funk records. You know I mean? A lot of the stuff, you know, when you listen to um, like some of the grandmaster flash stuff, that stuff is straight funk. Oh yeah. The message in New York, New York, New York, New York. Come on now. Those are the ones that's funk. You know, especially New York, New York, that thing is ridiculous. Yeah. No, and then um, yeah, Doug, so much Doug, Doug Wimbush, right? Oh yes, man. Yeah. Man, I can't wait. When we when we finish this interview, I gotta pull New York, New York up because I haven't heard in a long time. Oh, it slams. But yeah, it's killing. Yeah, you know, but yeah, straight punk, man. You you uh, did something with Phil Collins? I have on here. Yeah, man. Yeah. What was that? What was that about? That was a cool situation, man. Um. It came by way of Babyface. I started doing sessions. Face started calling me to start doing recording sessions for him. And this is the late 90s. 
and I did a, a series of different projects that um, Face produced, and one of them being a remake of the Cindy Lauper song "True Colors" that Babyface produced on him. So, um, got a chance to go over and just just play that play "True Colors," man, for Phil. You know, and I mean that was another one. I walked in the studio. Um, this was um, Face had a had a had a spot over on Melrose and Highland at that time called Brandon's Way, and um, as soon as I walked in, man, I mean, I you know I didn't know who the session was for when I got there, but I mean I was like, man, hold up, <laughs> wait a minute, man, <laughs> you know, when another starstruck situation, you know what I'm saying? You know when you just get stopped in your tracks because bro, oh no. Wait a minute, man. Let me go out and come back in. Because I know this is not Phil Collins. This can't be Phil Collins. Man, stop it. Yeah, but yeah, it was, man. Nice dude. Nice dude. Um, and it was funny, man, because at the same time, I was doing a TV show at the time. Um, back in the late 90s called Vibe. It was a it was a late night show. It was Quincy Pussy, Jones Production Company. Quincy Jones Production, yeah, and we we did vibe. So I was in the house band. So um, and myself and Greg Fillingaines. Greg Fillingaines was the um, musical director of the vibe band. So um, basically, we um, he was the one who tied me in with Babyface. So we would do we would shoot the vibe show during the day, and once we wrapped on the vibe show. We run over to uh, Babyface and do the session after we finish the show. So, um, yeah, Phil Collins happened to be in that in that batch of of, of sessions that we did for um, Babyface. You know, some really great projects that we, I, I was able to um, connect with um, with Face because, of course, wow. he was hot at the time. Was there one uh, experience performing that just stands out um, because maybe it was who you were playing with, it was who you were playing before, it was, uh, uh, I don't know. You know, I was once at a show at the House of Blues on Sunset Boulevard. War was playing in the 90s, and a, yeah. and a fire hydrant broke on Sunset Boulevard, and water came in and flooded the entire House of Blues, and we got evacuated in the middle of their show. Yeah. So it could be something like that, but you know, what, what stands out to you? Okay. <laughs> I got a funny one, man. This has happened once and once only out of the thousands of performances. Um, the band Lakeside, they have a singer, um, one of the lead singers, you know, they had a, 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 role, a, a front line of singers. One of the singers back in the eighties, mid eighties, left the band to go solo, to do a solo project. His name is Otis Stokes, right? So um, Otis, had never he had never recorded a, uh, an actual project. He didn't have his own project out. You know, he, he just decided he wanted to go solo. He had made some demos, but, and then he was trying to like embark, get, a, get, a, get, a, get a, his thing going as Otis Stokes. His own, his own fantastic voyage. Yeah. yeah. Very much so. Very much so. <laughs> he's, he's the falsetto voice of all of the lakeside hits. You know, great kid, great guy. But okay. So, um, and then I had started working, doing some things with Lakeside. Well, 
tease. We kind of kind of connected with those guys with Stephen Shockley and was, as a matter of fact, Stephen Shockley produced Bob Lakeside produced the second tease album. That yeah, that one was produced by Stephen Shockley of Lakeside. But anyway, Otis was was our boy. So Otis had a manager, a French girl, and a, a girl out of Paris, and her his manager did him a favor. Her, the manager's cousin was promoting a Rod Stewart tour in Europe. And as a favor to Michelle, her cousin said, I will put Otis Stokes on as an opening act for Rod Stewart in, in Paris, France. And so this, is, of course, was a great opportunity for Otis Stokes. You know, so Otis called me. I need to put a band together. I got to go to um, Europe. I got a, a, a one show in um, in Paris. So we put it together. We were we didn't play any Lakeside music. It was just his demos, right? So we went and put about a 20, 25 minute show together to open up for Rod Stewart. So we're in an arena. I'm talking about it's 19, 20,000 people sold out Rod Stewart fans. So Okay, we get our we get the introduction right onto stage. You know, French girl. S'il vous plaît, Stokes. Nothing. There's twenty thousand people in this arena. Yet nothing. No claps. No anything. So we come out on stage. We play one song. You might hear. And then, okay, we, we, we count off the second song, right? And as we're counting, we're starting the second song, I heard, Beak! like something, I just heard some, some kind of metallic, I don't know what it was. And then I heard, Beak! Beak! and I'm sitting, the next thing you know, I'm starting to hear it more and more. I mean, it's starting to get like more. And before you know it, Scott, we were getting Coca-Cola canned off stage, bro. I'm talking about, Thousands of Coca-Cola cans being hurled at us. <laughs> I was like, wait a minute, man, it's raining. <laughs> Coca-Cola cans, bro. And some of them Coca-Cola cans had Coke in them. <laughs> they weren't all empty. So I got to say, of all of the thousands of times that I've been on stage, and out of all the experiences that I've, um, I've, 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 I've been afforded, the Coca-Cola can stay offstage experience is probably the most memorable. Wow. So yeah. you guys just went off stage? Oh, get the hell, man. We had to get the hell out of there, bro. Yeah. I mean, we had to take cover. We had to crawl. I was like, man, get out the best way you can. Because <laughs> it's raining. It's raining Coca-Cola cans, bro. Wow. That well, I, I maybe you shouldn't feel too bad. I mean, that remind, I was there when Prince got uh, you know, hit like that at the Coliseum opening for the Rolling Stones. Oh, yeah, it was the same situation. It was like it wasn't like again, it was just bad pairing, you know, bad pairing. I mean, you know, this guy this guy had no no business being in front of 19, 20,000 people there to see Rod Stewart. Like, even if he were performing Lakeside songs, it just was not a good parent. 
And man, we went all the way to Paris, France, from Los Angeles, to get booed and Coca-Cola canned off stage. Wow. <laughs> well, you survived. You survived to tell the story. Yeah, but that's incredible. We didn't even get the. We didn't even get two songs done. Wow. <laughs> over with, bro. <laughs> that's crazy, Corny. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I'm gonna uh, put you on the spot. This wasn't. You weren't prepped, but let's see if you can roll with it. Um, oh. What if you can only have five albums, Desert Island albums, ones that you haven't played on other people? Oh. What would be your five most influential or top albums that you'd have to have with you if it was only five? Okay. Um, one for sure is the 1979, the band Pleasure mm. did an album called Future Now. Nate Phillips. Oh, big Nate, baby. Big Nate. Now, that is one of my all-time favorite records, man. You know, I mean, the funk level is so high in the bass thing, man. Nate Phillips, so nasty, bro. So, um, I guess that's one. Um, I'd have to say even Bootsy's first one. Uh, the name is Bootsy, baby? Stretch it. Oh, no, 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 no. No, 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 I'm talking about the stretch it out. Stretch it out right That would be two. I have, um, you can't see it. I have an autographed copy of it right there on the wall. Really? Yeah. That's huge. That's huge. Yeah. Um, 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 man, I don't know the title of it, but it's the um, Graham Central Station album that has Can You Handle It on it. Like, this is like around 74. Yeah. 74. Um, it's probably Honey from the Ohio Players. That's four. And then you got to throw in um, my boy with Jaco. That's Heavy Weather, uh, the Heavy Weather album by Weather Report. You know, and I'd be good with those five, bro. Yeah, I'd be good too, man. Honey yeah. is uh, Ohio Players are my first favorite group, and yeah. Honey is my favorite album by them. Oh my god, I got fire up there, but uh, yeah. Honey is the one. Yeah, Honey is the one, man. Because see, not only did I like the the funk. Out of out of the Ohio players, man, they had beautiful ballads too. Really beautiful, nicely arranged, you know, like slower, like mid to to slow slow tempo stuff. Man, they were just a quintessential unit all the way around. Yeah, you and know? that one, let's love and and uh, sweet sticky uh, thing. That's what I'm talking about. All that type of stuff, man. You know, yeah. they could they could jazz on you. They could slow it down and definitely you know, get nasty with it, you know? Yeah. And that, that pleasure, that pleasure record. I mean, I think they were overlooked quite a bit, you know, oh, they got kind of lost in the shuffle of cameo and confection. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. They were bad. Yeah. yeah. Oh man. That, that, that's a, a, you know, to me still, you know, I'm talking about bass lines and, and sonically I'm talking about from a C cause I'm, I'm huge on sonics. I love, Stuff that like 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 you know that record still stands the test of time today, from a sonic you know mix vantage point. That one and all of the Ohio player stuff sounds as huge and massive today as anything. Yeah, what a like, difference it made for them and Funkadelic when they went from Westbound to major labels. Absolutely, you man. Know, they got such better recording and quality and yeah, yeah. yeah. Yeah, yeah, I just uh, expanded them, expanded them, man. 
you know. But man, you know, all of those, it's all of these experiences, man, you know. And the one thing, man, that has made it all okay at the end of every day is that thing had funk on it. It always has funk on it, Scott, for me. I don't care what the scenario is, what the situation is, man, you know. I don't care. I love playing church now. I play at my church now when I'm in Los Angeles. And man, it's one of the funkiest environments in, in, in more recent times that, that you'll find. Man, we'd be smashing, bro. It gets so gritty at church. I feel like so much of where the funk came from came from church, among, you know, like African rhythms and things like that. But it came from church and yeah. then it really has gone back to church. If you don't know, now you know, bro. That's exactly what it is. You know, the whole church, the gospel, um, Af African rhythms, you know. And so it all, man, when you go back into the, like, the music, of, you know, like even, um, you know, like in the early, like I'm talking about the blues, you know, in, in, in the very root elements of the blues. Man, you listen to that stuff, man. I'm talking about when it was just a dude sitting on the porch with an old out-of-tune guitar, and he just, you know, just stopping his foot, playing it, you know. Man. Yeah, and see, there's a project that I've, I've been involved with here in more recent times, and I've got to say, I'm super proud of this one, man. It's like the most successful project I've ever been involved in. So we've won, we've won three Grammys. We've, we've, we've actually put out three albums, and all three of them are Grammy award-winning, and the project is called Fantastic negrito fantastic negrito man um and the category that we've won the grammys in is um best contemporary blues album mm. right so you know they, they put it under a blues moniker or the umbrella of a blues project and it is a blues project yes it's quite bluesy but man i'm telling you i'm all kind of funk up under you know, I'm putting the funk, and, and then you got more, you, a, a lot of gospel um, um, inflection, a lot of church gospel inflection on the Fantastic Negrito, and it's grungy, like a grungy rock, like almost like Seattle grunge, you know, so it is, you, if you ever get a chance, you should take a listen to Fantastic Negrito, man. Definitely going to take it, a listen, yeah. It's crazy. And how, how did that project get off the ground? Man, it was um, there's a brother in, in the front of it um, that, that he fronts it. His name is Xavier DeFrepolis. Xavier and I connected in L.A. in the early 2000s, around 03, 04. He and I started, you know, I started doing bass sessions for him. And, you know, we just kind of I could see he was an enigma of a talent, really different and unique and, you know, kind of different. So he and he's a real workhorse. I mean, real. You know, he, he's a grinder. So he, we ended up, I mean, doing countless recordings. And he would just pack a, package them up and put things out and try to release. And, you know, he would reinvent and, you know, um, ch ch change the name over and just kind of just kind of throwing things against the wall. Then he hit me up one day and said, man, fantastic Negrito. I'm going to go with that. That's what it's going to be. So he put a... a, a a batch of songs together. We put a band together, 
and went and started just kind of grassroots performing around up and down between Los Angeles and um, the Bay Area. And under the moniker Fantastic Negrito, it just started to gain momentum. You know, and now by this time, you know, um, you know, as we kind of got got it going, social media played an incredible role, an incredible role in, um, you know, just getting it out there. And before you know it, man, you know, it just caught on, man. It just caught on. We did we did the first album in 2016, um, the last days of Oakland, and first album, first Grammy. You know, then we did another one called "Please Don't Be Dead." And um, I think we did that one in 2018. Second record, second Grammy. Sounds like a good title leading into the pandemic. Yeah, man. And then we did the last one, man. You know, um, third third record, third Grammy. So we're three for three. Wow. No, well, congratulations just, on that, man. That's cool. Yeah, man. Very so cool. I'm really, really excited about that. And just being in the Grammy number, man, it's, it's pretty, pretty amazing. Congratulations! Yes, brother. What, what else? What else do you have going on? Uh, what uh, are you up to, and what might people see in the near future? Well, man, um, I had another um, project that that we got some really good. You know, we didn't win the Grammy or the American Music Award, but we were nominated. You know, for Album of the Year, um, I did a song, uh, or I, I, I co-wrote. A song for are you familiar with the um the artist um she goes by the moniker her oh yeah it, she's she's awesome she's a bomb she's a yeah. bomb she's so a real she, musician yeah oh she's very 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 talented man well she's got a, a project out now called back of my mind that's the name of the album and that particular song back of my mind is i, I i'm a co-writer so um, that record went, and you know, I mean, we made great noise, you know, a lot, lot of great, um, um, you know, um, recognition and visibility. So, but and and of course, we were nominated. We didn't win, but man, it's always good to even be in the nominated, nominated um, category, you know. So that was that that was what we did this year. But um, I've also got another movement, man, that I'm proud of too. Now, I, I didn't mention this in the interview, but I've got to make mention of it because I'm proud of it. Um, man, with all the music successes that I've, I've, I've been, you know, the, the great things that I've been able to do musically, my life also took a, a, a horrendously bad turn in the area of drug addiction, right? Through the 80s and the 90s and even into the new millennium. You know, I struggled. I struggled, man. So, um, you know, I mean, I was able to get it turned around, you know, and, and get, get on the, the winning side of it. But as a result of, um, you know, I was only able to do it through, you know, kind of from the spiritual standpoint, you know, get a real spiritual lock in and then um, recovery. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm very vested in recovery, in the recovery arena. You know, it's, it's a very major part of my life even today. And um, something incredibly weird happened. Um, in the pandemic, I ended up connecting up with some people on Zoom right here, like on this very same platform. And I ended up writing a song, right? It, it, it motivated me. So I ended up putting a song together and I'm, I'm the, the artist on it. I put it out on myself 
And it's something that really, really, it's, it's, you know, to encourage people. You know, I'm not even monetizing it. I just put it together. I did a video on it and um, put the video out last year. And the thing is blown up. You know, it's almost become like a theme song for, for recovery. And, you know, just uh, like motivating people that, that may have struggled in that area. Or if you struggle at all, man, this, this, this song is not necessarily just simply to the, the recovering addict or the person with um, addiction. Or, or put it this way, it, no matter what you may be addicted to or what you may struggle with, this song is applicable, you know, and it's been like a real blessing, man. You know, so I'm an artist now, you know, you know, uh, I, as a, the song is called Keep Walking Like You're Going Somewhere. Keep Walking Like You're Going Somewhere. It's on YouTube, you know, um, and um, I put it out last year and then I ended up getting, doing a little remake and I, I actually hooked up with old school rap, um, hip hop legend um, Curtis Blow. Oh, yeah. So Curtis Blow. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Curtis Blow jumped on my remix. And, um, you know, so I got it, I, I, and it, it, it gives it even more traction since I, since I dialed Curtis Blow into he, it. So, he's had some health challenges, I know. Yes, he did. And so that's what kind of, you know, he, he had a heart transplant last year. So he really, really, when he heard the song, he was like, Corny, man, I love this, man. You know, and I'd worked with him back in the 90s, so we were great friends. So, yeah, so Keep Walking Like You're Going Somewhere is my personal platform that I'm pushing right now. You know, and it's really a motivator, man, and super positive. And, um, you know, I just want to help somebody that may need help, you know, that may struggle. If you're struggling, man, you know, I'm, I'm a witness that you can do it, man. If you, you got it, but you got to make a decision and then just keep going forward, man. You know, that's what the song is all about. That's fantastic. I'm really glad that you brought that forward and uh, wow. so glad that you made it through those tough times. and. Yeah. So that's kind of like my, my, my purpose, man. Oh, credit to you, Courtney, man. Good Thank job. You. Thank you. Sir. <laughs> yes, sir. Yes, sir. Yeah. So, how, how can uh, people keep in touch with what you're up to and all that good stuff? Well, man, you know, I'm on um, Facebook on Facebook and Instagram. You know, the Instagram is um, bombbase1014, B-O-M-B-B-A-S-S 1014 is the Instagram and then um, Cornelius Corny Mims on Facebook. And then I also have a website, um, cornymims.com, you know, and you can see what's going on and um, keep up with me, man. Um, I've been a little derailed, you know, just kind of since I've been here in Providence and for the reason that, I, that I'm here, but I'm about to get back to California, man, soon and kind of get back into things. I've got a great trip coming up at the end of the month. I'm going, I'm going, I'm, I'm going to, do a show with Jeffrey Osborne um, in the Dominican Republic. Well, yes. have you ever been there before? Never. This will be my first time. So I'm going to, <laughs> going to the DR with Jeffrey, man. Um, I'm leaving on April 28th. So I got to get back to Cali so we can rehearse. And I'm, I'm the musical director for this, uh, this particular event. So, yeah, it's going to be good to be back, back at rehearsal, you know, back, you know, getting back into the groove. Wow, that's awesome. Is he yeah. playing? Is he playing some LTD songs also? Oh hell yeah! Yeah, so some great bass lines, man. Oh yeah, man, back in love, and yeah, we we getting ready to, you know, it's a it's a whole seventies theme. Yeah, for the, for this night. So 
Borderlines yeah. comes to mind of his stuff with a, a cool bass line. Sure, man. Sure, sure. Yeah, yeah. So Jeff Osborne, LTD, you know, we're getting ready to go do it out in the, in the Dominican Republic. Wow. Wow. Yeah, so I'm excited. Blessed. That's very, very cool. Yes, sir. Yes, hey, sir. man, it's been so much uh, fun talking to you, Corny. And, uh, yes, sir. Appreciate we got, it. We got a few common threads, brother. Yeah, man. Yeah, yeah. We were like in the same place at the same time, and but just hadn't crossed officially until now. Yeah. And yeah. then I looked at your website and I saw, man, you know, I mean, I know I have to do this because you've already talked to all my people. <laughs> you've already had so many of my, 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 my folks that I've grown up with. I was like, man, this makes all the sense in the world for me. I've got to do this. Yeah, well, I'm glad you did. And uh, thank you so much for the opportunity, Scott. I really you know, I wish you continued good health and success. Yes, sir. Take good, good care. My oh, man, have a great weekend, man. And we'll talk again soon. All right, Courtney, take care, man. Take it easy, brother. Peace. Peace. Blessings. I hope you enjoyed this episode of Truth and Rhythm. A big thank you goes out to our guest as well as to you, the viewer and listener. Also, much gratitude to Pleasure for supplying the show's funky opening and closing music. As a reminder, you can always access the complete list of linked shows by episode at funkinstuff.net. I urge you to support this program and receive the extra benefits along with that by subscribing to the Funk and Stuff channel on YouTube and sharing it with funk, R&B, and jazz lovers, joining Truth and Rhythm's membership program at Patreon, submitting a donation at funkinstuff.net, buying Everything is on the One, the first guide to funk book at Amazon, shopping at the Funky Things store for cool merchandise at funkinstuff.net, and linking through funkinstuff.net for all of your Amazon purchases. In addition, if you're an artist or anyone seeking proven results-oriented professional marketing, PR, writing, or editing consultation or production, check out the media services section at funkinstuff.net. Also, I encourage you to drop me a line at scottg at funkinstuff.net. I love the feedback, suggestions, guest requests, appearance and sponsorship inquiries, and just talking about my favorite subject, groove-based music. For now, and as always, this is Scott Dr. GX Goldfine saying, keep on keep vibing on to the rhythm of the one.